My name's Julian Savalescu and I'm the director of the Uhiro Centre for Practical Ethics and it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, another Australian, Clive Hamilton, formerly a, uh, an economist and now a, uh, a, a, this is first described to me in Australia as a public intellectual. Um, and he's currently at uh, Charles Sturt University and he's here to give a series of lectures on geoengineering related to a uh, book that he's got forthcoming on the topic. So Clive, it's all yours. Thanks very much, Julian, for that intro and indeed for the invitation to, uh, to come back to Oxford to give this series of lectures on um, what I think probably most people here realise is a profoundly important topic which is only just getting off the ground but which is going to be a really dominant uh, public issue for, for a long time to come. So we, in a way, are sort of pioneers taking uh, an interest in this. So uh, I'm grateful to uh, Julian at Uhiro Centre um, and also to while I'm thanking people, those have helped uh, uh, organise this administratively, Melia, Rachel and Miriam. And the lectures, as um, Julian um, intimated, are based on uh, a book uh, which should come out uh, early next year, published by Yale University Press. And so the, these six lectures are an opportunity for me to try out some of the ideas and uh, revise the manuscript um, <coughs> to reflect uh, what I learned from you in response to um, the kinds of arguments that I'm going to uh, put to you. Well, very little thought has been given to uh, geoengineering and uh, certainly the longer-term implications of it. Of course, there are some early thoughts which have gone into the science, of course. Um, well, that's still very early days. Uh, there's been a bit of thinking about the ethics of it, uh, particularly by Steve Gardner and a few others. Um, there's been some talk about governance issues, although that's really very much in its infancy. There's almost nothing on the politics or the geopolitics of geoengineering, and yet they will be vital within a decade. Uh, we'll hear about it constantly. Uh, nor is there anything on the larger meaning of geoengineering. In other words, what it means for human beings in the 21st century to intervene in the global climate in an attempt to regulate the Earth system, which is what at least the grander geoengineering technologies uh, aim to do. So um, today I want to uh, talk about uh, some of the background, why it is that we're here talking about geoengineering, um, how have we arrived at this point, and what are initially at least some of the uh, implications of how we got here for the future of uh, geoengineering. Um, so today, here are the six lectures, and there are, yeah, I'm sure you've seen these, but there are a few sheets there that just uh, remind you, I'll just point out that it's uh, 11.30 on Tuesdays, except for two of them, which are on Thursdays for different reasons, so just make a, uh, a note of that if you're keen to come to one of the subsequent uh, lectures. And today I want to talk, we have an hour and a half, or... Uh, but today I want to talk for a bit longer than I usually would. I want, I'll talk for about 60 minutes, which is a long time to talk. Uh, I'll try and keep the other one short. It's just that I want to spend quite a bit of time setting the scene uh, of the science and, and the politics uh, so that we can revisit and elaborate on those um, later on in subsequent lectures. And I'm very keen to get your responses. If not in person here, then uh, by email I'd be very keen to hear them and I'll put an email address up uh, uh, towards, towards the end. Well, 
how have we got to, to where we are, talking about geoengineering the Earth's climate? Well, climate scientists have, of course, watched with mounting alarm as carbon dioxide concentrations have relentlessly increased. And the anxiety has uh, deepened each year as it's become clearer that the uh, range of emission paths mapped out by experts in the 1990s were actually unduly optimistic and that the actual growth in emissions, boosted, of course, by the explosive uh, economic growth in China since about 2000, say, uh, the actual growth in emissions has described a pathway that's much worse than the worst-case scenario that the IPCCs uh, have been reporting right up until including the, the fifth assessment report. So when scientists announced that the growth rate of global greenhouse gas emissions in 2010 was almost 6%, breaking all previous records and wiping out the benefits of the temporary lull due to the 2008 recession, climate scientists around the world drew a sharp in-breath. Alarm has spread to staid organisations such as the International Energy Agency, an arm of the OECD, which for years has pretty much... Uh, shared the worldview of, of oil and coal industry executives. It's been seen to be legitimately a sort of think tank for the fossil fuel industry. Um, but in its last... Well, it would be the last international body you would ever accuse of having green sympathies, except perhaps OPEC. Um, so a frisson of dread ran through the climate change community in November of last year when the IEA released its annual World Energy Outlook it exposed the target of keeping warming below the so-called dangerous level of 2 degrees centigrade as pretty much a pipe dream. On current projections, uh, the energy infrastructure that will be in place as early as 2017, so and bear in mind these all have long lead times and energy infrastructure is in place for decades, but once that's established in 2017, so unless there's some radical change in the next five years, that energy infrastructure will lock in future carbon emissions that will warm the Earth by much more than 2 degrees centigrade. Um, these aren't IEA projections. These are from Climate Interactive, the MIT-based uh, uh, modelling uh, outfit. And you can see that if governments around the world, and this is a year or so old, these figures, um, but if governments around the world actually implement the proposals that they've said they want to undertake, which of course must be doubtful, then the world would warm by uh, the end of the century or in fact, perhaps a couple of decades beforehand, by four degrees. Um, so the IEA um, um, wrote that it's no longer possible to put our faith in new technologies. That's no longer an option. We can't wait around for new technologies to save the day. On planned policies, it wrote, rising fossil energy use... Um, will lead to irreversible and potentially catastrophic climate change. So the world, the IEA suggests, is now on track to warm by 6 degrees centigrade, which is almost unthinkable. In its middle scenario, in which governments do mo no more than implement the policies they're currently committed to, the IEA expects the world to warm by 3.5 degrees, which is a bit lower than climate interactives, 4 degrees. Now, it's hard to communicate to the public what a world warmed by 3.5 degrees, let alone 6 degrees, will be like. 
Uh, and it's hard to communicate even that the IEA and other organisations saying the same thing should be taken seriously. I mean, the, the IEA was in London last week talking to global energy ministers saying the same thing. And you can imagine the, uh, most of those energy ministers walked out saying, right, what's next on the agenda? In other words, they didn't take it very seriously. Um, so it's harder for the public to grasp what's going on. Uh, visually, here's this famous burning embers diagram uh, which tries to give you an idea of what's going on. But, you know, for the public in general, I think, um, one unseasonable snowstorm is enough to nullify decades of painstaking scientific work. And psychologists, when they've studied this, have discovered that if you put a bunch of people randomly selected uh, into a room and account for all other factors, factors that might influence their opinions, uh, when they are asked um, about climate change, people are significantly more likely to agree with the statement that global warming is a proven fact if the thermostat happens to be turned up in that room. Suffice it to say here that 3.5 degrees, let alone 6 degrees, means a different kind of world, one hotter than it's been for 15 million years and not the kind of world on which modern life forms evolved. It would be, eventually, a world without ice, no glaciers, no Arctic sea ice, of course, that's probably going to go in the next few decades, at least in summer, no Greenland ice sheet and almost inconceivably no Antarctic ice mass. So the destabilisation of the Earth's climate expected this century under the IEA's more optimistic scenario would cascade through the centuries beyond. For at least a decade, climate scientists have been disturbed by the widening gap between the actions demanded by the evidence and those being implemented or even considered by the major polluting nations. A creeping fear has taken place amongst climate scientists that the truth would be faced too late. After the Kyoto Agreement of 1997, there was an expectation that having recognised the danger, the world would respond with policies to turn the, the curve of global emissions downwards. By 2005, the protocol had been ratified for enough nations for it uh, to enter into force, um, yet by then it seemed like a pyrrhic victory, its inadequacy highlighted by the fact that the world's emissions, far from turning down or even stabilising, had actually accelerated. In the 1970s and 80s, global emissions of carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels uh, grew at around 2% a year. In the 1990s, they'd fallen to around 1%, giving some grounds for cheer. In the 19... Um, uh, sorry, from the year 2000, driven <coughs> mostly by China's astonishing economic expansion, the growth rate of the world's carbon dioxide emissions had trebled to close to 3% per annum. Now, for those who grasped, grasped, grasped the enormity of what was at stake, the remnant forces of hope for international action were gathered together for one last mighty push at the Copenhagen Conference in November 2009. The collapse of the talks left an abyss of despair for the future of the world amongst those who watched these kinds of figures, one that was not papered over by the Milk Toast Agreement in Durban in 2011, which resolved to begin negotiations for some future treaty, uh, a... Uh, um, uh, uh, to be agreed in 2015, but not to take effect until 2020. It was as if 
uh, suggests the ostriches had awarded themselves another decade to bury their heads. While climate scientists observed these baleful political developments, their work provided additional grounds for disquiet. Building on the discoveries of paleoclimatologists and more advanced knowledge of the functioning of the Earth system, they began to focus on the dangers of feedback effects. Here's a sort of rough representation that someone drew up of feedback effects in the climate system. That is, responses in the climate system that amplify or dampen the direct effect on warming of rising greenhouse gas emissions. For example, as warming melts the Arctic ice cap, which coats the Arctic sea, the exposed water is darker than the highly reflective ice it replaces and absorbs more heat from the sun. And indeed, this Arctic amplification, as it's known, has seen the rate of warming in the Arctic occur at twice the global average. Many in the expert community received a fright from the dramatic declines in Arctic summer sea ice in 2005 and especially 2007. Warmer Arctic waters are causing complex changes to climate patterns in northern zones, including melting of permafrost. The release of frozen methane, a highly potent greenhouse gas, as you know, further amplifies warming. There are negative feedback effects that dampen warming and tend to return the climate system towards an equilibrium state, but overall the destabilising effects seem much more powerful. Since the early 2000s, research into feedback effects have gathered pace, not least because understanding these processes uh, is essential to filling the gaps between the climate models and the actual behaviour of the climate system. The study of feedbacks has been closely related to another idea emerging in the scientific literature, that of tipping points. The Earth's climate is what's known as a non-linear system, that is, changes to one variable do not lead to simple proportional changes in related ones. Equations are more complex. In non-linear systems, a small change in one state may initially have only small effects, but at some point a threshold may be crossed where the system, driven by amplifying feedbacks, flips suddenly into a new state. Research emerging from paleoclimatologists has fed these concerns. They have discovered many instances in the Earth's climate record of the climate shifting abruptly from one state to another within a few decades, and even in some cases within a few years. The esteemed paleoclimatologist uh, Wally Brocker was one of the first to understand this fact when in 1995 he wrote the paleoclimate record shouts out to us that far from being self-stabilising the earth's climate system is an ornery beast which overreacts even to small nudges the existence of tipping points destroys the comforting idea that the slow build up of greenhouse gases is causing a gradual change in temperature and that when it gets bad enough, we can do something about it. The essential belief on which global negotiations were founded was increasingly seen to be dangerously wrong. The emerging science of abrupt climate change was reviewed in a landmark report uh, published as early as 2002 by the US National Research Council. One of the authors of that report, the director of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, noted 
recent and rapidly advancing evidence that Earth's climate, sorry, noted recent and rapidly advancing evidence that Earth's climate repeatedly has shifted abruptly and dramatically in the past and is capable of doing so in the future. He, Dr. Gagosian, went on to say, um, this new paradigm of abrupt climate change has been well established over the last decade. Um, world leaders may be planning for climate scenarios of global warming that are opposite to what might actually occur. So the idea was born that within the next few decades we may face a climate emergency. Paleoclimatologists explained that although the Earth's climate has always been in a state of flux, shifts may be so sudden that natural systems are unable to adapt and disappear. Abrupt climate change in the past seems to explain the mass extinctions that have occurred. In 2009, a group of eminent Earth scientists summarised their growing concerns about feedback effects, tipping points and abrupt climate change in an article in Nature. Uh, current climate models, they wrote, uh, of current climate models, they wrote, um, if these slow feedbacks are included, doubling carbon dioxide levels gives an eventual temperature increase of 6 degrees. This would threaten the ecological life support systems that have developed in the late Quaternary environment and would severely challenge the viability of contemporary human societies. While in the face of accelerating global greenhouse gas emissions, political inertia and worries about sudden climate change, some climate scientists began to mull over what could be done to slow the world's apparently unstoppable rush into the abyss. Among themselves, they began to talk about possible responses to a climate emergency, such as a ma massive methane <coughs> release following rapid melting of the permafrost, the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, or rapid dieback in the Amazon rainforest. These are the climate emergency scenarios that seem to be most often talked about. Any of these could quickly shift the global environment into a new state and there would be no way of recovering the situation. How could we intervene to prevent these things happening if they seem imminent? In other words, the, th the thinking was, if plan A, persuading the world to cut emissions, is failing, shouldn't we have a plan B? In the 1990s, proposals for geoengineering were regarded by the mainstream as fanciful and a distraction from the real task of reducing emissions. Although Plan B had been a topic of private speculation for some years, almost all climate scientists took the view that the availability of an alternative to cutting emissions, even if manifestly inferior, would prove so alluring to political leaders that it would further undermine the will to do what must be done. To canvas climate engineering, let alone advocate it, would be unethical. But the longer political leaders prevaricated, the louder the silence surrounding geoengineering became. The frustration became too much for Paul Crutzen, the eminent Dutch atmospheric scientist who had shared the prize, uh, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1995 for discovering the hole in the ozone layer. So he, Crutzen, penned a famous editorial essay titled 
albedo enhancement by stratospheric sulfur injections a contribution to resolve a policy dilemma published in the journal Climatic Change in 2006. And Crutzen's intervention in this editorial essay opened the floodgates for geoengineering. Expecting the political process to respond adequately to the imperative to cut emissions, Crutzen argued, had become a pious wish. It would be prudent to invest in a substantial research program to test the feasibility of cooling the Earth by injecting sulphate aerosols into the upper atmosphere in order to reflect a greater proportion of incoming sunlight back into space and thereby cooling the planet. Kreutzen expressed particular concern at what he called the Catch-22, presented by the fact that governments in developing countries are following industrialised countries with measures to clean up urban air pollution, responsible, he wrote, for some 500,000 premature deaths each year, urban smog. That pollution, that smog, especially the vast brown haze over much of Asia, is helping to cool the planet. Cleaning up the air by reflecting a portion of incoming solar radiation back into space, cleaning up the air would, over a brief decade, say, lead to an unprecedented increase in global temperature by almost one degree centigrade over land and four degrees centigrade in the Arctic, Crutzen suggested. I mean, and over geological timescales, you know, a one degree increase in a decade is virtually unheard of. Perhaps is unheard of. Without what he called an escape route against strongly increasing temperatures, continued emissions growth, combined with anti-pollution laws, would bring about potentially catastrophic effects on ecosystems. Um, you might know that ecosystems um, can't survive rapid changes in temperature. They can adapt more easily to slow changes in temperature, but rapid changes in temperature are a killer. Noting that the development of the Antarctic ozone hole, in which, of course, he was um, a world leader, that um, development of that hole was sudden and unpredicted. And he wanted to alert the world to the risks of sudden and unpredicted uh, global warming following some uh, rapid, abrupt change in the uh, world's climate. Now, many of Paul Crutzen's colleagues at the Max Planck Institute and elsewhere reacted angrily to his intervention. In anticipation of that reaction, one of his associates, Mark Lawrence, who's now at the new Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam, he wrote a paper in Crutzen's defence titled The Geoengineering Dilemma to Speak or Not to Speak. And he referred to what he called the passionate outcry by several prominent scientists claiming that it is irresponsible to publish calls for research into geoengineering. Nevertheless, um, despite this um, preparing for the onslaught, um, Crutzen was shocked by the ferocity of the attacks. I mean, I know, because I asked him about it uh, last year. Uh, but he weathered the storm, and time, I think, has presently proved, certainly, that if he had not intervened, someone else would have soon enough. The pressure had become irresistible. That someone of Paul Crutzen's uh, stature 
an undoubted commitment to protecting the natural world. He was described in Time magazine as, quote, the chief scientific caretaker of life on the planet, should call for serious research into, uh, that he should call for serious research into geoengineering as a response to global warming must give us all pause of thought. Geoengineering presents a profound dilemma, not just for climate scientists, but for uh, all environmentalists, and soon the public will be compelled to confront this dilemma too. Many find repellent the idea, embodied in some geoengineering schemes, but not all, of taking control of and regulating the Earth's climate as a whole. It is, surely, the ultimate expression of humankind's technological arrogance. Yet, if the alternative is to stand back and watch humanity plunge the Earth into an era of irreversible and hostile climate change, what is one to do? Perhaps Paul Crutzen's only offence was to arrive at a conclusion a decade ahead of most others. On the other hand, his well-meaning intervention might legitimise the stance of hitherto fringe voices whose motives are less politically pure or sympathetic to environmental protection. That was his colleague's fear, and it was a reasonable one. As we'll see in a subsequent lecture, or two, particularly lectures three and four, climate engineering is intuitively appealing to a powerful strand of Western technological thinking and conservative politicking that sees no ethical or other obstacle to total domination of the planet. It's a Promethean urge, named after the Greek god who gave to humans the tools for technological mastery and adopted uh, subsequently to describe the power unleashed by the Industrial Revolution. Promethean plans have always met resistance from those who share a deep mistrust of human technological overreach, those who heed the warning that Nemesis waits in the shadows to punish hubris. So, I ask myself, if Prometheus is the god of technological mastery, who is the Greek divinity of caution? And perhaps the closest uh, we can find is Soteria, Soteria is the goddess of safety, preservation and deliverance from harm. And in a theme that will run through these six lectures and the subsequent book, I will suggest that climate engineering is the last battle in a titanic struggle between Prometheans and Soterians, with the prize nothing less than the survival of civilised society. <coughs> So where do I stand in this? Just to sort of flag um, the general tone of the argument I'll develop. Well, I have serious doubts about the wisdom of any attempt by humans to take control of the global weather. The detailed reasons will become plain through the lectures, but at their heart is a conviction that the Earth is unlikely to collaborate in our plans and we should heed the kind of warning most famously expressed by Robert Burns when he wrote, the best laid schemes of mice and men oft go awry and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. And so I hope to explain, not least by drawing on earth system science itself, 
an understanding of the earth that inclines towards this conviction. Well, by early 2009, three years after Paul Crutzen opened floodgates, more than half of leading scientists who responded to a poll by the independent newspaper agreed that, quote, the situation is now so dire that we need a backup plan. That was before the Copenhagen fiasco. Another third, on top of those half, agreed with the proposition, um, sorry, disagreed with the proposition, not because they assessed the situation differently, that we're approaching a very dire uh, situation, circumstance, but because they believe the better response is to commit more strongly to Plan A rather than start developing Plan B. The Copenhagen Conference was the first of the annual climate change jamborees at which geoengineering proposals had a significant presence at various side events. Ominously, although you may not agree with my choice of adjective, a year later, the UN's Intergovernmental, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, decided for the first time to incorporate into its next report an evaluation of geoengineering as a response to global warming. And I think when those reports, three of them, do appear, it will change the game completely. Interest in and funding for research into various schemes to engineer the climate has been accelerating rapidly. A network of scientists, entrepreneurs and advocates has formed and is gaining influence in the scientific community and government. According to one observer... John Vidal of The Guardian, from just a few individuals working in the field 20 years ago. Today there are hundreds of groups and institutions proposing experiments. The range of techno-fixes is growing by the month. Most are unlikely to be considered seriously, but some are being pushed hard by entrepreneurs and businessmen attracted by the potential to make billions of dollars in an emerging system of UN global carbon credits. Now I think when Vidal wrote that, last year, it was, the first part of it in fact, a, an exaggeration, an overstatement. There are hundreds of groups and institutions proposing experiments, but I think it will be true soon enough, within a few years. While the number of researchers expressing interest in the area has indeed grown substantially over the last few years, and indeed entrepreneurs and scientists are registering patents for various techniques, uh, a topic to which I shall return, the international debate over geoengineering and its governance remains dominated by a very small group of experts, mostly scientists, but including a handful of economists, lawyers and policy experts. And I'll return and uh, expatiate on that uh, uh, small but powerful lobby group in Lecture 3. So let me turn now... Uh, briefly to uh, the question of what is geoengineering. Now I'll be saying a lot more about this in Lecture 2 which is devoted to various geoengineering technologies. Uh, but just uh, to give a flavour of it uh, in this lecture, geoengineering may be defined as deliberate large-scale intervention in the climate system designed to counter global warming or offset some of its effects. And I'll have a bit to say about the standard and alternative classifications of geoengineering technologies in the next lecture. Now, diligent contributors to Wikipedia have listed some 45 geoengineering schemes or variations on schemes. 
eight or ten of them are receiving serious attention and I explain those uh, and their pros and cons uh, in the book although I won't have a chance to go uh, into explanation beyond two or three of them in the next lecture because I think detail is more important than just another overview Um, so I'll describe some of those in the next lecture but let me just give you a couple of examples here to give a flavour of what it's all about We've seen that loss of Arctic sea ice reduces the Earth's albedo or uh, reflectivity. If a large area of the Earth's surface could be whitened, uh, then more of the sun's warmth would be reflected back into space rather than being absorbed. A number of schemes have been proposed, including painting roofs white, uh, which is unlikely to make any significant difference globally area covered by roof tiles or whatever is simply not big enough to make much of a difference although locally in, in cities it might uh, cool things down a bit what might be helpful would be to cut down all of the forests in Siberia and Canada it's generally believed of course uh, you know, with this shocking proposition and indeed it is shocking uh, but nevertheless um, it's generally believed that forest, more forests are a good thing for the climate because of trees absorb carbon. Boreal forests, and incidentally, I had to look it up, boreal means northern. Boreal forests have a downside. Compared to uh, the snow-covered forest floor beneath these, um, uh, these forests, uh, trees are dark and absorb more solar radiation. So if you cut down all the trees, you'd have a much greater snow-covered area and that would reflect... Uh, more solar radiation uh, back into space Um, and the Earth would therefore be cooler. Of course, in the Earth system matters are never so simple and when the Earth warms uh, by, say, another degree as it inevitably will because it's already locked in uh, by uh, what we've done in the past then when this snow melts you've actually replaced dark trees by dark um, Earth and you're actually worse off. More promisingly, perhaps, at least at a local scale, is the attempt to rescue Peruvian glaciers whose disappearance is depriving the grasslands that sustain the livestock uh, um, uh, um, of their uh, water supply. Painting these uh, newly dark mountains with a white slurry of water, sand and lime keeps them cooler and you know, initial experiments suggest that um, the ice is retained in these areas where the rocks have been painted white. Uh, at least that's the hope, and indeed there's enough science in it uh, for the World Bank to be funding uh, some research in the area. In 1993, in one of the earliest uh, geoengineering proposals, the esteemed journal Climate, Climatic Change published a novel scheme to counter global warming by the Indian physicist P.C. Jain. Jain begins by reminding us that the amount of solar radiation reaching the Earth varies in inverse square to the distance of the Earth from the Sun. He therefore proposed that the effects of global warming could be countered by increasing the radius of the Earth's orbit around the Sun. An orbital expansion of 1 to 2 percent would do it, he suggested. Although one of the side effects, whether positive or negative, it's hard to say, would be to add 5.5 days to each year. 
So then he calculated how much energy would be needed to bring about such a shift in the Earth's celestial orbit. The answer <coughs> turns out to be around 10 to the 31 joules. How much is that? Well, at the current annual rate of energy consumption, um, it's more than the amount of energy humans would consume over 10 to the 20 years, or 100 billion billion years, which is a bit more, in fact, quite a lot more than the age of the universe, which seems like a lot. Um, but Professor Jane reminds us that, quote, in many areas of science, seemingly impossible things at one time have become possible later. Perhaps, he speculates, nuclear fusion will enable us to harness enough energy to expand the Earth's orbit. He nevertheless counsels caution. Quote, the whole galactic system is naturally and, de naturally and delicately balanced, and any tinkering with it can bring havoc by bringing alterations to in orbits of other planets also. Amen to that. Now, some geoengineering schemes, of course, seem properly to belong in an H.G. Wells novel or a geek's discussion group, and too much emphasis on them, for the pleasures of ridicule, uh, would give a very unbalanced impression of the research program into climate engineering now underway, and any such impression will be correct corrected in the next lecture when I... Uh, deal in detail with the more serious and indeed likely schemes that are being developed, likely in the sense of uh, likely to be deployed. So geoengineering is being proposed um, because of our refusal, I think this is an extremely important point, politically and ethically, um, when judging the ethics. Geoengineering is being proposed because of our refusal to face up to the warnings of the climate scientists. This refusal takes the form, uh, takes various uh, forms, including, of course, out-and-out -out denial of climate science. And um, probably in this country, people are less um, uh, worried about the influence of climate deniers. But certainly in the United States and in my country, climate deniers are a very powerful political force. Um, in Australia the um, head of the Catholic Church, uh, the chair of the national broadcaster and the leader of the opposition and likely next Prime Minister are all climate deniers. Um, but beyond that, um, there's, also, there's a more general evasion or downplaying of the warnings of scientists. It's not that most people reject it or disagree, they accept it but they actually don't really take in the meaning of what the climate scientists are saying. Um, the kinds of warnings that are being echoed by organisations like the IEA. And so I want to spend the last part of this lecture um, talking about climate denial in its various forms because I will suggest understanding the social and political context of arguments for uh, geoengineering requires us to understand um, denial in its, and evasion in its various manifestations. If forms of denial structure the interpretation of the problem, then they will also frame thinking about solutions to it. See what I'm saying? It's because we've got into this situation, the kinds of thinking and political uh, and social forces that have got us 
to the situation where we're thinking about geoengineering, those same forces uh, will uh, determine or heavily influence how we think about geoengineering and its usage. Now, in his book um, about how people react to uncomfortable information, particularly uh, he's focusing on atrocities, uh, Stanley Cohen uh, distinguishes three kinds of denial. When we engage in what he calls implicatory denial, we downplay the political and moral implications of what we know so as to absolve ourselves of the responsibility to act on what we know. In the case of global warming, this kind of exculpatory denial is in play each time we say, well, China builds a coal-fired power station every week. When we engage in interpretive denial, we don't reject the facts, but construe them in a way that changes their meaning. In the case of global warming, some people accept that humans are changing the climate in the way scientists say, but add uh, that, well, the climate has always changed, as if this somehow renders relative and therefore less upsetting the suffering global warming promises. The third kind, literal denial, is out-and-out repudiation of the facts, and it's the kind that's become familiar in the public debate over the last few years. Of course, climate deniers reject that label, preferring to adopt the heroic mantle of sceptic. Now, a sceptic is one who carefully filters received knowledge to see which propositions stand up to independent scrutiny. But one thing we immediately notice about the contributions of climate sceptics is the absence of a quizzical, thoughtful approach to the problem. Among those who debate the science of climate change, uh, the deniers are actually the ones that profess to be most certain, insisting vehemently on the falsity of all of the claims of climate scientists and convinced of the correctness of their own, of their own positions. Their rejection of all of the main propositions of climate science is absolute, a dogma immune to evidence. So a well-known climate denier, uh, Ian Plymer, for instance, claims to have disproven all of the main propositions of climate science. In a question and answer session um, following a public lecture, the prominent and sceptical climate scientist Chris Rapley was vociferously challenged by a climate denier in the audience and he told me that when this climate denier stood up to attack him, um, the denier's uh, wife stood up and fled the lecture theatre. <laughs> um, after responding calmly to this torrent of accusations, to no uh, effect, Chris Rapley stopped and he asked his accuser this question. What would it take to convince him that, it w that he was wrong? That climate change is real, dangerous and caused by humans? And of course the denier in the audience ignored the question but it was clear to everyone else in the audience that there was actually there is no evidence that could convince him that he'd got it wrong. And being a fair-minded man, Chris Rapley later posed the same question to himself. What would it take to persuade him that his views were wrong? And he said that it would be a research paper published in a peer-reviewed journal revealing a feedback effect that neutralised climate change along with an explanation of why it had remained undetected or latent until now. 
and he said that new evidence would, for him, require confirmation from an expert in the field um, whom he holds in esteem. True sceptics are, of course, to be found amongst climate scientists themselves. As a matter of cultural practice and professional rivalry, research scientists routinely subject the work of their peers to the most critical scrutiny. And it's a mark of quiet professional pride to find mistakes in the work of one's fellow researchers. So I think it's clear that the dispute over climate science is only superficially about the science. The dispute is about worldviews and cultural identity. In the United States, where climate science denial is most entrenched, a number of studies have shown that... Sorry, there's Chris Rapley addressing this uh, question to well, two well-known climate deniers. In the United States, um, in the 1990s, there was no difference uh, between Democrat and Republican voters in their attitudes towards global warming. By 2008, a very large gap had opened up. And the opening up of this gulf was due to the fact that Republican Party activists, in collaboration with fossil fuel interests and conservative think tanks, had successfully characterised those accepting global warming science as liberals, a term of abuse for American conservatives. And the story of how this happened is now well documented and well told, uh, most recently and in uh, most detail in Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway's wonderful book, Merchants of Doubt. Um, in other words, what these activists had done was to activate the human predisposition to consolidate one's identity, one's sense of self, by cementing one's connection with a certain cultural group. In the 1990s, views on global warming were influenced mostly by attentiveness to the science. Now, in the United States, one can make a good guess at an American's opinion on global warming by identifying their views on abortion, same-sex marriage or gun control. I mean, who was surprised that within a month or a year of its formation, the Tea Party adopted climate denial? It's sort of, it'd be bizarre if they didn't. Um, so it's now well established statistically by a number of studies by sociologists over the years that in the United States, <coughs> denial of climate science is much more common amongst conservative white males uh, compared to other demographic groups. It's also true that those white males who feel most confident and knowledgeable about climate science are more likely to deny the existence of anthropogenic warming. So you have this group called confident conservative white males. Now, in the most recent uh, study of this phenomenon by Aaron uh, McWright and Riley Dunlap uh, in a paper you might have come across last year called Cool Dudes, The Denial of Climate Change Among Conservative White Males in the US, published in Global Environmental Change, they show, they, their data shows that 71% of conservative white males uh, who believe they understand the issue well, so well-informed conservative, I mean self-described well-informed 
conservative white males, say that there is no significant consensus that global warming is occurring. And amongst the rest of the adult population, the proportion that believe that is only half that percentage, the, the uh, yellow uh, segment uh, shown here. And while uh, 57% of well-informed conservative white males say that they are not at all worried about global warming, only 16% of all other adults feel so relaxed. So the question is, what is distinctive about conservative white males? Well, first, compared to other adults, and this is a phenomenon that's been studied quite intensively over 10 or 20 years by sociologists in the US, compared to other adults, white males have been shown to be less averse to a wide range of risks. This may be due to the fact that traditionally, as the dominant social group, they are actually less subject to a whole range of social and environmental threats and more able to control their environment which is why they're less averse to risk, because they're much better able to protect themselves from a range of risks. Alternatively, their sense of identity may have been destabilised by the deep changes flowing from the social revolutions of the 60s and 70s, feminism, environmentalism, multiculturalism, which saw a cultural backlash in films and television programmes, particularly in the 1990s. Uh, in addition, for many years, the most public voices of climate science denial in the media, coming, for example, from Fox News commentators, Rush Limbaugh, uh, spokespersons, uh, spokesmen from right-wing think tanks, and so on, they have been high-status conservative white uh, males with whom other conservative white males identify. So if, as Aaron McWright and, du and Riley Dunlap claim, quote, conservative white males are likely to favour protection of the current industrial capitalist order, which has historically served them well. The key word, I think, in this, when we're thinking about climate change and geoengineering, is order. The felt need to maintain the stability of the social system. In the past, threats to the established order have come from a range of political actors like socialists, feminists, environmentalists and more recently Islamists. Now the threat is from a disturbed natural world. It's pointless, of course, to rail against the weather. So those fearful of destabilisation have displaced the problem onto those who announce it. Scientists, environmentalists and political leaders who say we must change our ways. Now, we shouldn't push the white male effect too far, although I think it's a pretty powerful explanatory uh, variable. Nevertheless, uh, while the tendency to adopt climate denial is especially strong among conservative white males, certainly other factors are at work. Denial in various forms is widespread in the rest of the population. And the survey results indicate, as we've seen on those charts, that some 30% of those identified as confident or well-informed conservative white males do believe that there is a scientific consensus on global warming. And 43% of them do worry about climate change. Nevertheless, these results, I think, are consistent with a more general argument that conservatives tend to take a more hierarchical view of society, um, a natural order in which some groups are dominant and some are subservient. 
they are more likely to accept that exercising control and authority over both society and the natural world, those things are natural and desirable because the alternative means disorder and indecision. So this kind of analysis, I think, goes a long way towards explaining an apparent paradox that conservative organisations in the US, like the Heartland Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute, which actively reject climate science, also support geoengineering. Like the patient who will accept the doctor's diagnosis only if the illness is treatable. A solution to global warming that does not destabilise their worldview but in fact vindicates it makes recognising the problem palatable. So, to finish off, the white male effect has far-reaching implications for the imminent debate over geoengineering. This is the point of all of this. Consider what we know about conservative white males. They have more invested in defending... This is on average, of course, I mean... um, but we're generalising, but it's a pretty strong or well-sustained generalisation. Conservative white males have more invested in defending the prevailing uh, social order. Compared to ruinous carbon abatement policies, such as carbon taxes or emissions trading systems, geoengineering as a techno-fix promises to preserve many things conservative white males hold dear. The structure of economic and political power the position of fossil fuel corporations, economic individualism, and the rights of consumers. Indeed, the American way of life. And indeed, you'll see early conservative supporters of geoengineering explicitly saying this is the way to defend the American way of life against those environmentalists and liberal politicians who want to undermine the American way of life through their carbon taxes in their emissions trading system and even, astonishingly, legislation to uh, encourage the installation of uh, low energy light globes, which has now been repealed by Tea Party Republicans in the United States. I mean, mad, (coughs) completely mad. And yet, in the logic of it, this is defending the system that we believe in. This is defending individual rights. This is resisting the attempts by international liberal forces, including the United Nations, to tell us how to live our lives. And I don't know whether you've come across this, but there's now a strong movement in the United States demonising Agenda 21, you know, this well-meaning UN agreement that George Bush Sr. himself um, went along with at Rio in 1992. It's now seen to be the the central uh, document of an attempt by the UN, which sort of represents all of those nefarious forces concentrated in Europe and particularly in France, that want to um, destroy the American way of life. Now, as the identity of conservative white males tends to be more strongly bound to the prevailing social order, geoengineering is the kind of solution to climate change that is less threatening to their values and sense of self whereas mitigation policies like carbon taxes and emissions trading activate resistance from what McCrite and Dunlap call system-justifying attitudes, those same attitudes are likely to trigger support 
for geoengineering solutions because those solutions are consistent with ideas of control over the environment and the personal liberties associated with market capitalism. Just as the need to defend a cultural worldview makes conservative white males prone to repudiate climate science, so that worldview will make them prone to support geoengineering solutions. Instead of climate change jeopardising the system with which they identify, geoengineering, and especially the grander interventions, which I'll talk about next week, would represent the triumph of man over nature. Technological intervention, in which they have an unusual degree of confidence, they're much more likely to support nuclear power, for instance, technological intervention reaffirms human technological mastery. Once the authority figures trusted by this demographic begin to promote the benefits and deprecate the risks of geoengineering, we can expect that demographic group to swing firmly behind geoengineering and to set out to acquire information about the technologies with, which, uh, with a view to confirming their biases in favour of them. So we can expect that a pro-geoengineering coalition will form between those conservative white males who reject climate science and those who accept it. And this, I think, will influence the political agenda in a number of ways. For instance, this coalition will take the view that if we're going to geoengineer the planet, then it must be the United States, perhaps in coalition with trusted allies, that controls the process and not the United Nations, which they tend to hold in contempt. So I'll finish on that point, and in subsequent lectures I will um, elaborate on this worldview that I've uh, started to describe. I'm not suggesting, of course, that everyone who supports geoengineering or research into geoengineering holds these views, not at all. There's quite a diversity of views, which, you know, someone like Paul, this doesn't describe Paul Crutzen, for example, in the least, um, but um, it is a very powerful uh, worldview that I think will come to the fore as geoengineering takes off over the next years and those who share a Paul Crutzen kind of view which I'll describe uh, well I have already described as satirian which is uh, one uh, which invests which is much more cautious and concerned about the kinds of errors that humans make when they indulge in technological hubris I think we'll see a, a grand uh, dispute uh, over geoengineering uh, between those two kinds of tendencies. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll talk more about how that is manifesting in this, these very early stages of uh, the geoengineering debate uh, over subsequent lectures. So um, I'll leave it there and very happy to try to answer your questions over the next 25 minutes or so. Cheers.